Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio. Looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a balmy, almost balmy, overcast, but balmy February morning. Cade Masty hosting this morning with the whole crew. All of my faculty colleagues and Wharton Moneyball collaborators are in the house. That would be Shane Jensen, statistics prof to my right, Adi Weiner, statistics prof straight away, and Eric Bradlow, marketing prof and statistics, yes, in a way, affiliated, yes. Oh, yeah. Both departments. Eric oh, yeah. Both departments. Definitely. On my left. We're going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can join us. Give us a ring. The number is one wharton That's one 942 We do take your phone calls. We answer your phone calls. We're not a text-only situation here. You can give us a call. One eight four four Wharton. You can email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com, or hit us up on Twitter. Maybe the easiest way to reach us at wmoneyball. At wmoneyball is our handle. We follow the world of sports analytics. We follow our guests. We tweet occasionally about what's going on in that world. At wmoneyball, we have a regular show this morning in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour interesting goings-on with our guest, a little bit different take in this the shoulder season of a few major sports. We've got some MMA analytics from an economist, which is very interesting, and we've got some sports technology, terrifically interesting set of guests coming up in the show. In the first half hour, open lines. Glad to be back, fellas. It's been a couple weeks. It's been three weeks since I've been here. I'm very curious. There are lots of things going on. Adi was throwing down some interesting stats in the last minutes I'm before all, we started. I'm all MLB. Or MLB. <laughs> oh, MLB. It's a shoulder season, but for the for baseball fans. Oh, it's, it, it, it's cycling up. I mean, I, I think Eric and Audie are even more into baseball than I am, and so I think probably they're a couple weeks ahead of me in terms of excitement, but I'm starting to cycle up myself. Yeah, yeah I'm well, excited. You've got, you've got a long way to come back, right? You kind of took the season off last year? Is that the way it went? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, I kind of started fa- – I did start phasing out of it around August or maybe July or so. Yeah, yeah it was, July. It, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't pretty. Well, very right. soon there's going to be – every team in baseball is going to make the wild card round, so <laughs> no. we'll be you're, for you're the whole hurting season. me. You're hurting me. We talked so about got, this last week. Yeah, we did. And uh, I, I still do. You guys have you guys changed your take at all? Uh, well, given... no, you think I'm going to change my take, Mister? Well, no, no, <laughs> that's right. Are you keep are, it all the same. Expanding the they're, tra- they're talking yeah, about. So what they're yeah. yeah. So what they're talking about doing is adding another wild card team, and then having the first round was a best of three, yeah. where mm-hmm. the home team actually gets. All three games at home, so it's like a series, but at the team that's the better team. R- right now, w- one would get a buy. One team would get a buy, which is an enormous advantage. Right, and so the best team in each league would get a. So buy. remember, right yeah. now the way it is in baseball, the division winners obviously advance, and then there's two wild card teams play a one game playoff. Yeah, one game thing is so. So now they're going to move it to three, but add a wild card team, which means that only one team will get a buy, which is just. I mean, I'll use the Shane Jensen rule. They've got at least twice the probability of everybody else and they can line up their pitching rotation which other teams wouldn't be able to do so i mean they have to be more than double just because there is a little bit of an analogy here do you dislike this proposed change to the mlb playoff format more or less than the proposed change to the uh, nfl playoff why don't you describe it for me because it is a very similar well it, it would be again adding another 
team. It would be adding yeah. another team to the playoffs, which takes the first another wild card team, and it would again the only the best team now in each conference would get a bye. Only so the best team. Only the best team. So only the number one seed come. gets a buy. Why is it that it feels so wrong? I mean, we, we I hate these first round buys anyway. It's already such an advantage, but it feels especially wrong to get. Is it weird? It feels especially wrong to me to give it to one team and not two. Well, this is the is way. That, well, yeah. no, no. But let me, I'll just play it. This is the argument for it. Would be the argument for it. Adding the wild card team at the bottom makes more teams and more games interesting. <laughs> yep. Adding it at the top means, you know, I'll make it up. So next year, the Baltimore Ravens are 13-1 and after 14 games. But, damn it, they better keep playing if they want that bye. You know, so in, you could argue it's a top-end, bottom-end argument. It keeps more teams playing meaningful games, and that's mm-hmm. what the fans care about. And, you know... I'm actually for adding another wild card team in football. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I am for the 17-game thing. But, but, that, uh, is that, but is that logically consistent? Because you're saying expanding the number of slots available for that last wild card slot is good. And contracting the number of slots available for the buy is good. They can't both be true. Well, and also, I don't know how this would actually add much more incentive to play for the one, number one seed. I mean, yes, the number one seed, I guess, is that much more Infinitely valuable than more. one versus two. But, I mean, still teams were playing pretty hard for that one versus two yeah, because it right. confers a whole yeah, thing advantage. I think Shane, Shane is, AFC and let me just point out, in, in NFL, home field, and obviously skipping a game is a huge advantage. Also, there's a much bigger gap. So in the NFL, if you one of the features of the NBA of the baseball is that you get to pick the team you're going against. Yeah, that's the other and, weird and thing about this. Oh, NBA. Right. Not, so the NFL, think have... about NFL, right? If yeah. you take if you're one of the best two teams and you get to pick between the bottom five, yeah. that gap is actually quite substantial, and you oh, probably yeah. have an eighty percent chance of winning that one game. Being able in, to in, pick in, the team in MLB, is so weird. Being home and being picking a team. Eh, it doesn't matter that much. You're still going to be about fifty percent a game, and you're still your overall chance of winning that series is still going to be about fifty percent. So they throw this out as if somehow it's going to be an advantage to winning your division because you get to pick the team and be at home. Okay, so and the, a, the honest truth in baseball okay, is good. really. I think it's a fair point, but I think you probably exaggerated the numbers a little bit. So let's. Just, I just want to make sure we we have some sense of what we do. Think. And I think that top home field seed, advantage in playoff, like top it, seed and home field advantage against the bottom team on, in the league. What do you think that is? The series probability of winning sixty. Forty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. But I think in baseball, in football, it's way bigger. Yeah. I mean, this is, is. There's more is, spread definitely. there, and, and it's a, it's a game. That, it's a sport that's designed to be settled in one game, not in a series. Uh, right. Yeah. And baseball is quite the opposite. Exactly. The wild card thing feels so wrong. But my cynical read on the NFL proposal, which, by the way, despite being talked about right now, kind of in parallel to the CBA, the union negotiations, does not require player. They would like. They would like player oh, endorsement. Player endorsement. They don't. No, right. They don't. They can just do it. But um, my cynical read is okay. It's just a you know, it's just one step toward an eight-team playoff. That's gonna. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. and, and is baseball kind of the same thing? It's like okay, you're gonna give us five now. You're gonna want six, which by the way is I mean with football. I think that'd be great because then now we don't have anybody getting more buys than somebody. Well, we else. have no, this, yeah, we have this conversation like all the time, like with the college football playoff, which is what is it that you're designing the system to maximize? If you're designing the system to maximize, especially in football, the probability the quote unquote best team wins. This is the argument against expanding it, especially in baseball. You're adding another team which adds another layer of randomness because baseball is random enough as it is. Therefore, you're going to lower the odds that the best team wins in some sense. That's the standard argument, by the way, Mm -hmm. against adding more teams, especially in a thing like baseball. As you know, I'm all for in college football expanding it to eight teams. I'm 100% for it, but mainly because I think the measurement error 
is so large that I'm not able to judge who's the sixth best team that well versus the fourth best team, and therefore I want to include the sixth mm-hmm. best team because I'm not I'm not as confident that they're picking the, the top four in some yeah. sense. Hundred percent. Let me just build on that real quickly because the other thing that happens if you expand college football from four to eight, for example, is that you take a lot of the subjectivity. Most proposals would take a lot of subjectivity out of this selection. Power five winners. You say power five winners, and now this is nice because now you know the conference season means something, and it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter whether they are the you know power rank determined best team. It's just that they won their conference, so they're in, and that's nice. Then they're going to decide on the field, but let's not make it so even us analysts don't want to make it that I think we there's a there's an issue with making such an important decision based purely on these subjective Oh, you inputs. know what we really want them to do. We want them to have five teams, the lower end I'm joking for a second here. The lower end Pac-12 and Big 12 or whatever. They'll play for the play-in spot and the other three, the SEC, the Big 10 and the ACC will get the official spot. Yeah. Come on, that's what we want them to do. No, I mean Well, uh, that's the baseball version essentially. Yeah, and I mean I I'm, I'm actually against it change I'm kind of more of a traditionally, this I, I'm against changing to either the MLB or the NFL. You are from thank the cur- you. From the oh, current structure. Shane, I love you. Uh, but <laughs> but I will say, I mean, you know, another argument for it is, I mean, compared to say basketball or hockey, there are much far fewer teams that make the playoffs yeah. in the NFL or MLB. So I mean, opening up to a greater pool would make it, you know, compared to those leagues, would make it you know, would would, well, would match well, those leagues a little bit better. Though you don't necessarily want to match those leagues because the co- big complaint about the NHL and NBA is that the regular season has become somewhat meaningless or less meaningful because you don't have that extreme selection at the end. For sure, for sure. You, you have this thing Terrible. about when, when do you start paying attention? So with hockey, unless you're a diehard hockey fan... I've started paying attention. You started paying yeah. attention because they're not playing football anymore. Well, like, that's true. But it also, like, Champions League... Is it time to start paying attention to Champions League? There's there, there's 16 teams left. There maybe maybe they've cut it down yet. But it's like it's a little early so well, for a non soccer fan. It's a little early. Let's take a look at the NBA. What are we paying attention to right now? I mean, really think well, about it. I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot to pay attention. The Greek well, is. I mean, there's some there's spectacular, yes. spectacular individual amazing. performances we're enjoying yeah. watching. No, I'm, when they decide to put it on. So us real basketball fans last night. There was a really, in my view, a semi-important game in the NBA during the regular season. It's hard to argue any of them are that important. But the Milwaukee Bucks were at the Toronto Raptors last night. Which is the East Championship last year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the one and two teams this year. And, you know, those are the two teams people think are fighting out for the East. Although I wouldn't eliminate the Celtics yet, for sure. Would you eliminate the Sixers? I would, but we'll get to that in a second. Real quickly, they're doing well. Raptors are still doing well without Kawhi. Extraordinarily well. I mean, the fact that most people, nobody would have predicted them to be the two seed in the East, at least as of right now. So Milwaukee went in there and won the game. I think the final might have been 11 or 12. It was a fairly close game throughout. But this Milwaukee team, besides as we've they've slipped a little bit, they've now only got the second highest plus minus of all time. So they're no longer the top team of in the history of the NBA in terms of <laughs> points allowed versus points scored. They're the se- only the second highest of all time. But they're 50 and 8. Yeah. I mean, 50 and 8, they're on track for 70. There's yep. no reason why they can't go 20 and 4 in their last 24 games. I mean, that's basically the pace they're so playing give, at now. Give us a sense. My, it's, I, my, well, uh, two, two, three, two, two teams all the time. Three, three the Bulls, teams. obviously, the, and the uh, Warriors. Warriors. Those yeah. are For it. a long time, it was the Bulls, and then and then the Warriors did it. In one, Warriors what year? broke the uh, 2015, so why 16, are, the LeBron why? year where they won the championship uh, in seven. Okay. They defeated the – 
I still say that was the greatest accomplishment of all time, was the Cleveland Cavaliers having to win games six and seven at Warriors. This was the 73-9 and nine Warriors, the greatest team of all time, you could argue. And the Cleveland Cavaliers beat them in that seven-game series. That was, I mean, that has to be pretty the good. great, great LeBron. Good. So was the Bulls 72-10? and 10? They were 72 and 10. Yeah, okay. But that's only because Jordan decided he didn't want to play. They could have gone 78 and All right, well, four. Hold on. say one to two. <laughs> so so you, talk, you, wrote, you brought this game up is because it's particularly interesting. But what made it interesting? A couple things. Yeah, it I doesn't go, affect the playoffs. Well, no, no, no. But no. It's, I go back to the score. So this, I saw, I've seen Milwaukee play a lot of games this year, including against the Sixers. You basically can't score against them. Forget their offense. They had the best defense, and, they, and especially in the paint. They have the best. Yeah, you can't score against them. You just can't. And, and what are the factors driving that? The speed of their team on the perimeter. So not only do they clog the paint, which shuts off all interior scoring, but their ability to get out then to the three-point line and to get in the passing lanes. I saw them play the Sixers early on in the season. I don't know if the Sixers scored 90 or 85 or whatever the number is. And this was when Embiid was healthy, Simmons was healthy. The whole team was, was there. Was at home? Yeah, the Sixers were at home. And they just couldn't score. Is one of their two losses? Or? <laughs> yeah, it must have been. Yeah, it was yeah. one of their two You just can't score against the team. And so I think it's going to take, it would take, playoff LeBron yeah. to beat this team. What do you, you think about Embiid saying he's the best player in the world? I'm glad he thinks that. Great. That's great. <laughs> Athletes need to think they're the best players. Except in the, world. the night before, by the way, he scored 49 against the Hawks. The night before, when he scored 17 against Giannis, and Giannis put up like 35 and 20 against him, I think the best player in the world might have been the guy on the other team. <laughs> right. What, what, what do you think about this, this idea that, that Simmons and Embiid can't really play productively together? And that when Embiid went out and Simmons went on a run, that was just revealing how kind of inhibited he is in some sense. Well, I think when you see this style of play, actually, if you, this is where film could help a lot because, or, you know, motion tracking. Obviously, Simmons can't shoot the ball. We know that. And so he doesn't want to play a half court game. He wants to play a fast break game. When you watch, I mean, let's be honest, Embiid's 270, 80, whatever they list him at. They list him at 249. Okay, but he's 270, 280. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you see the fast break game, half the time, Embiid hasn't even crossed half court by the time the Sixers have shot the ball. So when you say they can't play together, that's because Simmons does not want to slow it down and take it to the half court. He wants to push the ball, get it to the three-point shooters. Embiid's not even in the post yet. He's not even half the time crossed the half court line. That's the stylistic challenge. So, so yeah. if that is true, to what extent does this indict a little bit Hinky's approach to just accumulating assets, talent, like yeah. independent of the way they relate to each other, just best player, best athlete, best player, best athlete as much as possible without worrying about how it fits together. I think stylistically, I think that's a very fair criticism. And I think, you know, if you think about a lot of the great teams, so what did the Bulls do, right? So, you know, obviously you focus around Michael Jordan, and then you say, what else do you want? Well, Jordan's the greatest offensive and defensive player, but you don't want him worn down on the offensive side. So let's get him a great player who loves playing defense, who doesn't care how many shots he gets. Oh, that's Scottie Pippen. Then let's get him a center that all he cares about is, you know, rebounding. So let's I'm, get Bill I'm, Wennington I'm, or I'm Cartwright. I'm only pushing back on this this narrative because was that actually how it happened? It like, is. Because we, uh, we do confuse process <laughs> and outcome a lot. I mean, the Bulls definitely put together an incredibly complimentary and 
you know, best of all time team. But was that, I mean, I, you would, I'll I guess, you know g- better than I would. Was that actually kind of their I'll process? I'll give you the greatest. And, and, well. and let me just build on that and say, you can also ask the same question about what the Sixers did and Hinky is like, how much of this stylistic conflict was foreseeable? Well, how much yeah. trouble yeah. did we really anticipate I, Bill, um, Simmons having, you know, shooting I, the ball? I could give you the greatest compliment to Jerry Krause, who was the GM of the Bulls Krause, at the time. I hadn't thought about Krause in well, a long that's, time. Well, that's where the name is. That's, that's his name. Um, I think I've told you this stat before. Obviously, everybody knows the Bulls won three championships. Michael Jordan played baseball for two years. They didn't win. That was two years, by the way. The Rockets won. didn't really play baseball. Well, whatever. Hey! Hey. Anyway, the Rockets... He got to, like, triple A, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He was was certainly a crowd favorite. And then the Rockets (laughs) won two, and then the Bulls won three again. I think I've told this stat many times. There were... To show you how great Jerry Krause was as GM, between the first three championships and then the second three championships, there's only two years in between, there were no overlapping players on the Bulls except for Pippen and Jordan. Mm. All other 13 players were different between the run of first three and last three. Mm-hmm. No overlapping mm-hmm. players. Now, that's an impressive thing to do. Really impressive. Well, you, in, in, you're giving uh, Krause in, credit. In, just, well, just he's the GM of the just, team. Just he constructed the team. Just for kind of like but, a, like how maybe a historical analog, the two, the two Kobe Lakers sort of eras. How many overlapping players? Because there was like a gap of a couple years there as well, right? Well, Between kind mean, of the Shaq, Lake, Shaq Kobe Lakers yeah. and then the Kobe. Um, right. Oh, there was a lot of years in between. Yeah. A lot of. No, but I'm just saying the fact is in only two years. I every say it player, was an, ex, it, an but, extra but, impressive. But my question is like, could he have run, you know, three of us out there with Pippen and Jordan and done okay? Yeah. That's kind of the that's kind of the alternative. I mean, story. maybe with Jordan and Pippen, that you could have brought it. We're, we're not going to be able to play baseball up to Audi standards, but maybe we could play that's professional right. basketball. But <laughs> you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to be playing defense as a teammate of Michael Jordan. So but can also, you imagine the score? <laughs> nah. But also, uh, Audi did. Why don't you say the calculation we did off air of the. Twenty-seven and two oh, home yes. Sixers, uh, so, so, and the nine and twenty on the road. So this is twenty-seven great. and two this at home, great. nine and twenty on the road. This is one of the all-time greatest sort of discrepancies, and we expected discrepancy in basketball, where the average home field advantage is fifty-eight percent, fifty-seven, fifty-eight percent, down from where it was back in the eighties when it was closer to sixty-five percent. So it's it's contracted, but still fifty-eight is substantial. But the <laughs> so hold on, make sure I understand you're, the background. You're, yeah, the, you're saying the home field, the home, home court should the be fifty eight. Is averages right now so in, the, this, in, in the NBA fifty eight percent? That implies a discrepancy because you got to look at both, right? So you, yeah, you, yeah. You, of course, fifty eight forty two. So that implies a discrepancy of sixteen percent. Okay, um, the Sixers are have a discrepancy after now. The actual discrepancy is is bigger, but I uh, is pretty big. It's what are they twenty? They're twenty nine and two at home and twenty seven and twenty seven two and nine and twenty nine nine. And, 920 on the road. So that just difference is about 0.6 nearly. It's incredibly <laughs> different. Yeah. So about typical, four, four times expected. Four times. Yeah. Well, so that's the expected value. So what I actually did is a calculation to figure out what the p-value is. And it did it, we kind of did it in our head, so it's a little bit sloppy. But there's a way to do that. So you, you want to shrink their average, their actual values a little bit towards the middle to take into account for the small sample size. So the, a really nice trick to do this is add two wins and, and four games. So add shrink towards the half, both of the sides. Uh, do that. Then you calculate the standard errors in the normal way. And the standard error comes out to about 0.12. So the difference when corrected is around a half. The standard error is about 0.12. You're looking at over four standard errors. Yeah. That's absurd. Unprecedented. Uh, Absolutely. It really is. I don't know if it's actually unprecedented, but in terms of probabilities, I wouldn't have expected this to happen maybe once before. Right. So what does it say about the team? 
That's the mystery, and that's what I'm thinking about. But it can't wondering be. I mean, about. But it's that stark. It can't be. We can't have no insight. In They're it. obviously Somebody stealing signs, guys. <laughs> They're stealing signs, right? So <laughs> they've got the the. So the, I don't the, know. Has to be, the visiting yeah. team's bench. Well, is well, well, how could you cheat in basketball? In the a visiting way that team's would bench is Mike. They yeah. got all the chairs. Mike. Yeah. I would guess, and this is just a complete, uh, you know, un- uneducated but potentially um, on target guess. It has to do with construction of, of of who's playing and how they're actually playing. I think basketball is easily the, the sport most susceptible to effort. We saw that in the All Star game where where you they mean went among the big three, among the among the among the big three. Because hockey is, is um, true, yeah. For sure. But uh, but ho- hockey, they actually they kind of anticipate that within a game and they they control for that. But in in basketball, we can see that when the when the stars in particular want to put it on, they become yeah, and, different and when, players. And actually, kind of with the hockey comparison, there is uh, there's a really interesting article written a couple of weeks ago about um, kind of. Uh, on the athletic about load management, and of course in basketball, it's where we kind of thing. just accept it as a part of the regular season now that load management's a huge kind we, of like we, we strategy accept it in this community, but it's still controversial in some oh, sense. Oh no, no, and the well, NBA, the NBA put some prohibitions no, right, on it. It's that's controversial right. because because load management, but for no one would ar- no one would argue it doesn't exist as yeah. a kind of a common procedure. Well, among no, but, hold on a the but, but don't some players? I mean, is it widely accepted among players, or is there still this kind of macho ethic of I want to play? It's weak if you have to sit out. That I, kind of I, thing. I think there probably is I, that, but the problem with load management in basketball is that people pay a lot of money to come to a basketball game, and they expect and and really think they should be seeing yeah. the team stars. And I I would guess that load management in some respect has something to do with the Sixers' home field advantage because their stars play at home, and I bet they're not playing. On and the maybe road. they are just doing an. Ex- that would be something that one could e- at least analyze: is are they doing kind of an extreme version of load management? Or, or they're only playing their stars, you know, disproportionately at home. Right. So it's not so when when the league require they they're going to come up with things like requiring you to suit all your guys when you mm-hmm. travel. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't they can't require and people minutes. to actually play. Yeah. No. So it'd be it'd be interesting to know what the what yeah. the minutes played is uh, the home. And this would be, of course, split. to see what, whether this could be contributing, way, but also d- effort. I mean, so hockey is very interesting. Well, as, it, as much as we think of basketball as a very high-effort game, and it, of course it is, I think hockey beats them all. Oh, I it mean, does. It does. And, and the thing crazy is, well, and, 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 <laughs> and so people have kind of been waiting for load management, these same kind of load management strategies that kind of pervade right. hockey, because it's a similar situation. So, it's a you just, know relatively meaningless regular so, season. So, uh, a long playoffs that you need to kind of be as rested as possible for. The thing is, you know, at least this article, the, uh, the compelling argument made is that it's harder to do load management in hockey because there's just way more parity. So let me ask you, you guys. You can't just kind uh-huh, of take right. let me ask you guys off two st- and not have an effect. Let, let's, let's make sure we don't yeah. run past this point. This was a very nice point, yeah. I thought, in the article. It's saying, you know, in basketball, the best teams, there's no. They can kind of coast. They can coast. They're not going to hurt their seed either. Yeah. And yep. it, and in hockey, they're so bunched and it's so chancy that yep. you lose a game or two and you miss your seed. Well, yep. let me just comment on a couple things. First of all, in the East right now, um, there is a huge amount of bunching uh, between, let's say, the four seed and the seven seed. So there is actually quite a bit of bunching. So the, on six, the bottom, um, in the mid, no, bottom. in the in the actual the playoff, playoff group, but in the second half of it. But play. I wanted to bring up two statistical points related to the Sixers. So you did your calculation. That's great. So does the following change your belief? about how rare it is. So I was just looking to see what other teams, maybe even this year, have that disparity. So I don't have to look far. Right above the Sixers in the Eastern Conference are the Miami Heat. Now, it's not as disparate, but they are 23-3 and at home <laughs> and 13-18 and on the road. That's pretty disparate, too. Yep. So now I look at that, 
and I start to say, hmm, yeah, right. maybe something's going on. So let me ask you a, a different question. So does that change your opinion? And the second part of the question is, I have a belief. They're not really 27 and 2 at home. They are. Like, which of those two is more strange? Is it that they're... They're 27-2 or they're 9-20? That's which is my question. question. Uh, yeah, right. So my the belief visiting, is right? they're not really a 27-2 home team. Yeah. The 9-20 and 20 is more reflective of their strength to why? me. No, 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 no I'm why? not sure about that. Why? We, I think their opposing teams do the same thing. They come in with, with their less effort, their weaker roster, and, and that it's two-sided. Well, I mean, so rejecting the whole so, hypothesis so, I mean, but, that they're the but, same but, is but, ridiculous. Well, right, but under, under, under this idea that like maybe load management is driving us to play our better players at home and not so much on the road, then that home court advantage should actually be going up in the NBA, it not should. down. Yeah, and and I'm be curious to see what it and, and last year locally how it that is, changes. You know, but, but but Adi, if they if if this team is practicing in its purest form, we know that the other 29 teams aren't being as pure. So no. you wouldn't expect the effect of visitors coming in to right. be as strong as you if they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, before we hit break, I want to I want to hear your thoughts, and I know Adi has some. You know, you guys are continuing to noodle out interesting little empirical <laughs> observations about this, but I really haven't been around you since. Yeah, you know, I've been around you since the the sign ceiling thing yeah. came out, but it's amazing to me how it continues. The grousing about it and the noise about it has grown. It just kind of built, maybe with the start of the season and pitchers That's, and catchers. I think 40. it is really. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think it's the perfect storm of it being like a legitimate controversy, obviously, but also spring training every year is a time when sports writers struggle to create stories because they don't have results yet, but they need to kind of yeah. hype people up. And this is such a compelling. So I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's easy mood for sports writers and journalists. They just ask the players what they so, think about science. So, so be- one of the before we- before we go too far on this, real quickly, I want to collect a phone call. It may be on our past. I've got to know. Let's collect this phone call and then come back to the. Let's come back to the uh, science ceiling thing. So, John in Detroit. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, everybody. Wonderful show. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, discovered you recently, and I try to catch every time. Well, hey, I appreciate um, that. Are you familiar with the book, The Boys in the Boat? Yeah, oh, I was just, indeed. I was just, I read it a couple years ago. I was just talking about it like last weekend. I love that book. It's one of the few books I, I want to reread. Mm. I'm reading it right now, and um, I won't say anything on air because people get it. It's a good book. But anyway, I was thinking what you said about load management. The idea clicked with me like the way the Washington crew with their coxswain, and I'm not even a rowing guy, and I'm throwing terms out there. You, you um, sound good. They, I'm thinking load management, and like he knew they could they could pull away at the end. So why burn out early, and then the demoralizing factor on the teams as they just blew by him? And you talked about the Sixers, and I'm wondering if there's some aspect of that. Like, well, we know we're more likely to win home games with our team. Why burn them out on the road? Are they? Is there some sort of balancing act they're trying mm-hmm. to do? Or am I applying this way too liberally? <laughs> well, you've got you've got boys on the boat on your mind, so you see everything connected to it. But it's a nice it is a nice connection, and, and pacing is a really important issue in in rowing. And I think a, a, an interesting question is sort of like: Is there kind of like if if you took this kind of like load management to the extreme, and you had this very disparate home and away record, and you still managed to go to the playoffs, like the Sixers are presumably going to do? Is there a cycle? Once you get yeah, to the right. playoffs and you literally have to play half your team's <laughs> right. games on the road and they're going to count, so you better actually try in them. 
Like, is there a psychological disadvantage that's yeah. kind of conferred from, like, you know, being yeah. so bad on the road during the regular season? There it's probably is. I mean, the players all argue it. This is the one thing that we, when we were down in uh, Miami and we had a chance to talk to actual former players, they always talk about the psychology of defeat yeah. and how it really hurts them to lose. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about football and how giving up eight yards on a run is considered crushing, but eight yards in a pass play, they're like, whatever. And, and how much that matters. And as an analyst, I'm looking at it and thinking, Eight yards. It's the same. <laughs> well, it, it, so but you, it, it's an open. Would you, say then, would you say then the application of it is a little different, say, across the different sports than it is uh, in it, rowing? Yeah, that's. It, but the thing is, it matters in different places. One of the one of the places I was thinking about it as you were talking about that, John, is in tennis, where where we know players will let a set go sometimes, and, and if they they just need to like let give themselves a little break, they're going to restore, they're going to pick up the set the next time. They do this, they definitely do this in tennis, and that sounds like a within game, you know, within match kind of load management, the kind of thing you're talking about. John from Detroit, appreciate the phone call. Keep listening and keep and keep enjoying that book. All right, guys, before we get to break, I want to I want to come back, back to, to the uh, sign stealing so, thing. So, so you ran this number, yeah. Recently. So there's a few things. I mean, everyone's talking about it. So what happened in your in the last couple of weeks, which is of course the players have all exploded with anger, particularly the Dodgers, the Yankees, the teams that lost to, to, to the Astros more than once and, and are upset about it, and particularly in 2017. I think I've personally thought that there's a little bit of grousing. I mean, that's what players do. Um, sign stealing is part of the game. Uh, trying to stop sign stealing is, is also part of the game. Of course, the Astros took it to an extreme, crossed the line and mm-hmm. did things in an extreme way that, that no other team really had contemplated. Although it turns out that most of the teams knew that this was going on. Yeah, I, I think um, I read that the Nationals had five different like kind signs, of right, signs, signs yes, exactly. systems they in knew. the World Series because they kind of knew that. But, the they, but they didn't know in twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen, no. no, but they no. did because Manfred wrote his letter in twenty seventeen saying teams are sti- ceiling steins don't but do this. This, but a degree of suspicion matters here. That's yeah. true, because but, to what extent do you prepare yourself? So we right. know the Nats went in there and they prepared themselves to basically be unstealable. I just think the Dodgers weren't. Doing that so in 2017, 2017 so the, remember the, the, what happened with you, Darvish. I mean, do we know right. the supposed story was they picked up on something? He's well, had some of the, the greatest right. So Severino, is that right? So yeah, Severino yeah. against I think uh, against the Red Sox, um, he was tipping his pitches, mm-hmm. and apparently he was sticking his tongue out or something ridiculous, and he got destroyed in the first two innings of, of the playoff right. game. I was actually yeah. there. I think the Yankees lost it like 14 to two or so. Days or oh something God, like don't remind me. But <laughs> Brock hold him for the cycle. But what was shocking about it is Severino comes out and he gets destroyed and and I I remember thinking mm-hmm. analytically why is he not pulled right away I mean yeah. he had did not have his stuff and then later of, com- of course it comes out and he might have his stuff it just they knew it was coming yeah. Yeah. and this relates to the Astros so the data point that just been talked about recently is Kershaw through 51 of the world's best st- sliders curveballs Kershaw owns that right and not a single swing and miss in his 2017 World Series game now I don't have the base rates on it wow and 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 it's not I, I suspect it's not that they were on uh, I'll give, you, I'll give you a base rate from twenty in twenty seventeen. He had a forty four percent swing and miss rate on his slider, thirty five percent on curve, twenty five percent on changeup. So on, on his slider, this great pitch you're talking about, half the time, slider almost, curve, yeah. almost half the time, right. They're swinging and missing. And there was not a single swing and missing? Not no. a single, single swing and so, so we presume that what they were doing was simply just not taking, just taking it. And the reason why the slider in particular is so devastating and the swing and miss rate is so high is it looks like a fastball. Yeah. It doesn't have that big loopy break like a curveball. Look, it looks and darts last. Potty, it turns out to be not as effective if you know it's a slider. <laughs> I'll say the following. Part of this, and this is, relates to our show, I think part of the reason why there's such anger also is because the Astros were thought of, and for good reason, as a progressive team using analytics, 
building their team. And now people start to question, like, should we have been giving them as much credit for being a well-managed, well-run team? I mean, they were that, that was right. part of the challenge. We're losing yeah. the faith. We're losing the faith. That's part of the challenge that they're, or, they're or facing. Or I think even more potentially kind of toxic for kind of analytics is, you know, you wouldn't want this perception that analytics is being used by teams, but being used specifically to cheat as opposed to kind of just to, yeah. you know, improve your team's performance within the kind of bounds of the rules. It's funny. So, you know, the Red Sox and other teams were caught up in the sign-stealing controversy and were, were punished Still waiting for to find and out also. And one of the things that they were doing is they were using the on-field f- camera to break, to decode with the signs in the middle of the game. All that's fine. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing was calling down to the dugout or using their watches to the dugout to tell them what the code was. And then the, the sign-stealing was taking place at second base, where yeah. it traditionally has always taken place. So none of this um, on every pitch, only when you had a runner on second. But their problem was, what they were doing was breaking the code in the middle of the game. Yeah. And that's analytics. You're supposed to do that. Yeah. But you're not allowed to communicate that with a phone or with anything other than a phone. You, they were using their watches. Oh, my God. It's, it's, uh... So it's a much more technical <laughs> yeah, type of exactly. cheating than what the that's Astros are trying yeah, to do. Whenever you're accusing a guy of hitting a series clinching home run because he's got a buzzer on his chest. That's that's a and, he did, and, and he did. And he did. Did he? Do we know that? I mean, I we know don't. it. Okay. <laughs> he knows it. All right. He, he might have just had an embarrassing tattoo. But for me, <laughs> you know me, I'm keeping them all out of the this, Hall of Fame. That's the important thing. Every one of them's out of the Hall of Fame. Well, th- th- that's the kind of thing, but that that's reasonable. But this tattoo thing is so much, yeah. so incriminating. It's, it's like it's like I was kind of me. on the fence on whether this happened or not, and then the tattoo story comes out. You're like, yeah, no, that happened. Oh my god! <laughs> All right, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Wait, wait. On business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Live every Wednesday morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. We've been doing this for coming up on five years. Guys, we're like, did you know we're like one week, two weeks away Early March is our wow. anniversary date coming up five on six years. years. Five? Six, six years. years. Come on, oh. man. Don't sell us short. All right, six. Jeez. We're almost Jeez. Wow, These are six quick and happy years. Yeah. Yeah. It's Enjoy getting happier it. all the time. Like happier. a good marriage. It's getting <laughs> better all the time. <laughs> you guys can join us. You want to jump in, give us some marriage advice. Do it. one 844 Wharton. 1-844-942-7866. Or you can hit us up on email. Business radio at SiriusXM.com or catch us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. In this half hour, we have our first guest of the week, Paul Gift. Dr. Paul Gift, Professor Paul Gift out there at Pepperdine University Economist, joining us for the first time on the show. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Cade. Thanks for having me. Uh, delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Los Angeles, bright and early. We are. Always um, impressed and appreciative of you West Coast folks, especially in the 830 slot. So thank you for making time for us this early in the morning. Paul, we want to hear about your work. We want to hear about MMA, maybe a little commentary on a recent boxing match. But first, let's get some background, because when we look at you from a distance, you look like a lot of colleagues around here. You're trained economists, UCLA. You teach micro. You know, you do economist things. 
but then you're also a judge, an MMA judge, and you're telling us about the analytics of MMA. How does this happen? <laughs> yeah, so I remember uh, watching those first UFCs back in the mid-'90s when I was in high school, and a guy named Hoyt Gracie, a scrawny guy and a gee, started choking everyone out. Uh, and I was always like a casual fan light, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed in 2009 when I was, I was actually homesick and, uh, you know, you just start binge watching things and the UFC was doing a promo at top 100 fights in advance of UFC 100. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I binge watched those and became a huge fan, but I was still wasn't doing anything with sports or MMA in my research. Um, so real quickly, Paul, real quickly, what, it. when you were binge watching it and becoming a fan, what was it about the sports? Sell us a little bit. On the sport, some of our listeners will be MMA fans. Some won't. Some we won't even be enough familiar enough with with it to describe it. So, as a non aficionado, until you know into your thirties, it sounds like, what was it that turned you on about the sport? I think I, I did judo as a kid, and I think I think it reminded me a little bit of that as we were going, but with but with other forms of combat. So, for those who don't know, um, a lot of people still think of it as no rules fighting or human cockfighting. But there are actually 27 fouls in the sport. But you can mix techniques from any number of legitimate fighting disciplines. Boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo, karate, sambo. You can keep going down the list. Um, It uses a a smaller glove, but a scoring system that was pulled from boxing, the 10-point must system. Uh, It uses fewer rounds, but longer time limits. So three to five rounds and five minutes per round. Mm -hmm. But the key element is when you go to the ground, the fight's not, you know, like like Wilder Fury 2 last Saturday. When you go to the ground, the opponent does, does, doesn't have to sit there and let you up. Uh, the fight can take place in any of three main uh, uh, positions. At distance, you're standing and not touching. In the clinch, you're standing and you're, and you're grappling while striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the ground, where mm-hmm. one fire is usually on top with control. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to knock your opponent out or submit them which is where you cause them so much pain or cut off blood or air supply if they tap out, go to sleep, or something breaks. That's called tap, nap, or snap. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of those things happen. Then you go to the judges' scorecards at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many matches end up in uh, going to the scorecard versus tap, tap, snap, or, or or what was it? Tap, snap, or what? It was, it was tap, nap, or snap. Okay, got it. <laughs> That's actually changed a lot over the years. Um, back when the UFC first exploded, 2005 was their explosion year. These, these stats are all UFC. The sport is called MMA, okay. even though a lot of people mistake it and call the sport UFC, which right. is not. Well, okay. There are literally hundreds or thousands of MMA promoters out there in the world. Um, but with UFC stats, going back to 2005, uh, actually half the fights would take place on the ground about a third at distance and 15% in the clinch. These days, 2019, that, that changed a lot. Uh, fighters are getting better trained. They're, well, they're learning a little bit about uh, the perils of being on the ground. And so right. 60% takes place at distance and 23% on the ground, still 15% in so, the clinch. So, Paul, this is Eric Bradlow. I've been a huge MMA fan for a long time. And one of the reasons I used to not like MMA as much, you mentioned Hoyt Gracie, for example, was that you'd get these Brazilian jiu-jitsu or grapplers who would just get the fight to the ground. And to me, those were less interesting fights. So it's interesting that you mention. I hadn't even thought about st- that there is this, you know, in some sense, tap, nap, or snap, that in some sense that the proportion has changed so much. Why do you think that is? Yeah, um, well, 
Do you think it's because of the fans also want to see people kind of doing more, I'll call it stand-up, boxing, kicking each other, as opposed to grappling down on the mat? I think a lot of casual fans want that. The the hardcore fans definitely don't. Um, but the UFC doesn't have a ton of leverage in how they can sort of influence uh, the action in the sport through um, – the rule changes because uh, right uh, MMA is regulated through state athletic commissions uh, all across the the country and and certain countries throughout the world. Sometimes promoters will self-regulate, so they make the rules. So you don't have a lot of leeway on changing action there. But why? I, I you know as a hardcore fan, I don't quite understand why people don't like it on the ground. I can get it when when the fight's in the clinch, being pressed against the cage. Even there's strategy going on there, but I get a little bit how. People think that is more boring, but the groundwork—I mean, unless the person's just laying and praying there—it's uh, <laughs> definitely fun to watch. We're talking to There's Paul. A fighter out there that people should check out if they haven't. If you want to see an interesting fighter, check out uh, Google or YouTube Ryan Hall and uh, and watch out watch the strategy involved when he fights. Uh, you, you wouldn't even think he was. You saw him in the street. You wouldn't even think he was a trained fighter. Wow, Ryan Hall. You say Ryan Hall. Yeah, he's not the most exciting person in the world, but he applies strategy in, a, in an excellent way. All right, so we're talking to Paul Giff. Paul is a sports economist out there at Pepperdine. He's a trained economist from UCLA, and he has become an analyst of all things MMA. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing. When you bring analytics and you bring you know the, the disciplines that you're trained in from economics to MMA, what do you learn, and what are you working on right now? What's the kind of the edge that you're pushing? Um, well, what I'm, what I'm, the project that I'm doing right now is uh, one looking at, I wouldn't call it pushing an edge, really. This is looking to see how um, a new rule change has, uh, has been implemented, whether effectively or not, in the sport, which was about how 10-8 rounds are scored. Uh, there was a, you don't get the annual rule adjustments in this sport that you might get from an NBA or something like that with a competition committee evaluating the sport every single year. Now there is a, a, a rules and regulations committee in MMA that has been formed and they are trying to evaluate every year, but rule changes are rare. You have to get this body called the ABC to agree on them. But even when the ABC agrees, every athletic commission can do whatever they want to do. It's kind of weird. Okay. You can literally go to different states and have different rules for your sport. Okay. Um, so the one was changing how 10-8 rounds are scored. So, what, so Paul, can you tell us what is, it, what is a 10-8 round? 10-8 round is when a fighter wins by a large margin. So uh, fights are scored to the 10-point must system. The winning fighter of a round gets 10 points. The losing fighter gets nine. Why they don't just give them one point, I don't know, but that's what they do. Um, <laughs> and and uh, those are supposed to be for close margin rounds. When you win by a large margin, you're supposed to get more points. That would be a 10-8. And overwhelming margin, which hardly ever happens, is 10-7. Okay. Uh, so what you were getting was it was coming from boxing. And most judges were scoring rounds 10-8, even though someone might have got the crap beat out of them. Uh, and because in boxing, you pretty much, usually, not always, but usually get a 10-8. The knockdown. Mostly get a 10-8 when, when, when there's a knockdown. Yeah. Right? MMA is a different sport. So they're trying, they've been trying to liberalize that over the years. In 2013, they did it. And then in 2017, they did it. So I'm analyzing that. So are you analyzing, this sounds like a classic economist thing to do, you, you, you look for exogenous change, and, and, and the, the idea is you can't really tell causality unless you get these exogenous factors, and so here's a rule change, the world changes, and how does the game change as a result? Well, Paul, let me ask you, uh, just building on Kate's point about exogenous changes, this gets back to my point, so if you want 
the sport to be more, let's call it, aggressive and exciting for the fans, put more probability on 10-8, and therefore fighters will have to, maybe there's more of an incentive to go for a higher risk strategy to go Mm -hmm. to 10-8. Do you think, as an economist now I'm asking you, do you think this is one of those things we call, as you know, mechanism design, where they're designing the scoring system to potentially influence the way people are fighting? Yes and no. I I, I think it's also it's also to um, just re- better reward fighters for the for the damage that they did in the round. But while these should affect their incentives, the interesting thing is I've I've done two other studies where where one shows a performance impact and the other one doesn't. One is is the size of the cage. Smaller cages tend tend to drive uh, more knockouts. Uh, and, and uh, uh, more, sorry, more fight finishes and distance knockdowns and choke attempts, things like that. You get responses there. But another study is on um, fighter bonuses and whether those have impacted fighter performance. Right? Your classic economic thing, if I give you more of an incentive, uh, right, a higher monetary payout for fight of the night, uh, submission of the night, and knockout of the night, those are now called performance of the night, does it affect your behavior? Mm-hmm. And what I found was actually benign results throughout that. With the, I think the idea being that there are a lot of other incentives involved while you're doing this sport. Mm-hmm. One, mm-hmm. Your, your health and safety and life is on the line if you do anything wrong, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you devote effort toward getting a knockout or a finish, might it might it hurt your chances of winning? That's your immediate payout. Most fighters get their salary doubled when they win, and then you can be you can be cut in the UFC anytime you are not declared the winner of a round. They can cut you. So. And this sport has highly nonlinear payouts as you get towards the top of your weight class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there could be other incentives that you want to win and keep moving up, getting towards where the real big money is. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Paul, we're going to run out of time with you eventually. Tell us some of what you've learned that would change the way we view MMA or, or, or how we might enhance our understanding of the sport if we knew more of the analytics you're, you're using and seeing. I think... Um, so I think the, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things is that uh, this isn't an alternating possession sport, right? It, it, where, like basketball, where it comes down to a game of efficiency, uh, right? This one, there's no alternating possessions on how you move, how you go for takedowns, how you strike. Uh, what sort of analytics ends up telling us is, is it, it, it's about trying to put yourself where your advantages are maximized and your disadvantages are minimized. And it's all about activity, volume, and damage. Uh, and so uh, what does that mean? When you're, well, you, you, want, you always want to remain active. But another thing the analytics tells us is when you're striking the head, judges can't always tell how cleanly you're connecting. So activity really matters there. When you're going for the body, what they seem to value is power shots to the body. Mm-hmm. Whether they get blocked or not, if they see like power needs to the body, that's, 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 counting points in judges' heads generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's legs, it's very easy to see whether you connect or miss. So accuracy is key, is important there. Mm. Uh, and then the other big thing is if you're on the ground, if you're on bottom, you're losing, basically. Mm-hmm. It's not technically supposed to be like that, but that's sort of one of the things that analytics is telling us. And so what you're actually seeing over time is more trainers and coaches are starting to realize that and teach their fighters that. I think that's why you're seeing those distance um, clinch and ground percentages over the years like you were because people like Farah Zahabi at TriStar are teaching this 60-second guard rule, which is 
your back hits the ground, then you either need to sweep, submit, or stand up, the three S's. You've got to do it. Get out of there. Wow. So, Paul, is this something you would, you know, anybody would learn over time with feedback that they need to change to adapt to how these things are evaluated. But one of the advantages of good analytics is that you see these things before other people do. Are there people in the sport that are especially interested in analytics? Are there trainers and fighters who are known for being more analytically savvy, and so they're kind of ahead of the curve? Is that is is it a sport that's open to this? I'm not. I'm not sure. From what I've seen so far, not really. But I think. But I think any any sport is open to it once. Um, uh, one once a little bit more money comes into play. I mean these 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 fight camps are not these sort of multi-million dollar or billion dollar enterprises like NBA sports teams. Um, a lot of them, a lot of them don't make a ton of money. Um, and a lot of fighters, you know, actually don't make, don't make a ton of money. There's an antitrust going out, uh, antitrust lawsuit going on right now to see um, if that's because the UFC was being anti-competitive or not. And I've written extensively about that. If anyone wants to check it out at bloody elbow or Forbes. Um, but so, and, and I'm actually not sure how much fight camps have access to the detailed data that's collected by fight metrics. There's not a lot of publicly available uh, data right now. There's a company behind it all collecting everything called fight metrics and the PFL has a different company and they're doing some interesting things with analytics. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't seen too much interest in it right now. Well, wow. I think once you get some big money people like McGregor and more of them, Maybe we start to see a movement towards paying. They're, I mean, they're definitely they're definitely elevating their training, right? But I'm talking about using in case analytics. Yeah, right, right, right. Is there is what about on the on the production side, the media side? We've seen so much, so many changes in, in other sports. They're in, they're adding little elements of analytics to the actual broadcast. Do you see anything in that? Has it changed over time? Yeah. Uh, so that's the interesting thing there is the UFC. The UFC is very secretive in that regard. They don't give you a lot. And, and, and Fightmetric is now owned by uh, the UFC's owners, Endeavor. Um, and I have a pretty good relationship with them, and I talk to them, and, but they, they don't tell me a lot about what they have coming down the pipe. But you can kind of already see where things might be going with what this new promotion called the PFL has done. They've been backed by VC investors and, uh, and some big names in sports and in entertainment. Uh, and they, uh, one of their things is to have a, uh, 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 more of a sort of hardwired cage that collect more detailed information on what's going on, things about heart rates and punching power mm-hmm. and, um, uh, pressure being put on people when they're on the ground. Uh, now they have to figure out how they're going to integrate it into their broadcast because I'm an analytics guy. I love it. Right. I'd love, I'd be interested in working with their data. But so far, when it's on their broadcast, it's these numbers constantly changing at the bottom of the screen, and it can actually be a little bit annoying when you're trying to pay attention mm-hmm. to the nuances of a fight. So that's kind of the, the line you have to balance as you're trying to to to, um, to integrate them in the broadcast. Right, right. Paul, we're down to just, just one last quick yeah, question. Yeah, Paul, this is changing. I just want to ask, just because we were talking about previously on our show, the concept of load management in a lot of different sports, like is is that something that is part of the strategy either within a match or of course between matches um, that that certain like athletes are, are are trying to do load management either kind of within a match with their strategy or or between matches. 
Definitely. You're talking about with, between matches with their training? Yeah, I mean, that, that I guess would be a more obvious load management. I, I, I would be actually kind of interested to see the extent to which within a match, are they just going all out, like, for the entire length of the match? Or, or is there some amount of load management even within a match? Yeah, and, and fighters are different in that regard. One, so um, the one thing about um, MMA statistics and analytics right right now is that the ones we have access to are are round-by-round round data. So we don't know what's going on sort of play-by-play, second-by-second within within a round, like within a quarter and another mm. sport. Mm. Um, but you can see it between rounds. But but what you, you get is, is dramatically different fighter types in, in, uh, uh, in this sport. Some who, uh, it's hard to measure things like cardio, but some who seem to uh, uh, fade early and others who actually just improve along the way in terms of their volume and output. Wow. We see a lot of different uh, things from different fighters, but um, I, I'm sure that is definitely an issue. And then another question is about sort of, uh, if we want to call it some load management to sort of rest between fights, and you also, we, I don't know what's going on with their training, but rest between fights, it does look like, um, I haven't done a full-blown analysis of it, but it does look like when when you uh, lower that increment between your fights, especially if you've taken damage along the way, um, that that could potentially be uh, impact your performance. So that's I have to study a little bit deeper. Terrifically interesting, Paul. That's that's such a big issue in other sports. We're seeing it at the macro level, like you're talking about between matches. We're seeing it within match and other sports. It'd be an interesting place to dig to dig into. But look, you're already doing really interesting work, and we appreciate your taking time to be with us, Paul Gift, sports economist out there at Pepperdine University. Appreciate you joining us. All right, thank you very much. Paul is an economist that trained in UCLA, writing about MMA. You can see him on Twitter at. MMA Analytics at MMA Analytics. Paul Gift. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back. Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics, live every Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed on SiriusXM four or five times over the course of the week, posted as a podcast. Later today, it'll be up on your favorite places to pick up your podcast. We're here. The whole crew is here today. Delighted to have everyone here. Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, this is Eric Kate. Bradlow, the MMA expert as well. Oh you guys did God. not well, know. I, mean, I knew about course, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Of course, of course. Wait a minute, I have you a prior. You would be an MMA expert as well. I have a prior on what Eric Bradlow knows. Everything. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> 0.95. But yet we were still surprised. <laughs> we hadn't thought ahead of time that Eric would. We're sitting here doing this MMA thing. We've, no, never, I, had an, we've never had an MMA guest before. We're kind of wandering in slowly, kind of testing the water. We're kind of asking basic questions. And then freaking Bradle jumps in with, like, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. has got names. I oh, mean, he's crazy. what the hell? By the way, let me just say the guy he likes, Brian <laughs> Hall, who I just looked up. I, this is why Paul wasn't happy with my response. 
this guy's the Brazilian jiu-jitsu <laughs> expert. The guy oh. said, I don't like that style. That was oh. the guy that Paul liked the most. Well, yeah. he said he was interesting. He said, right, go look at this guy. But I don't know much about MMA, but wasn't that fight between Holyfield and uh, and McGregor like the biggest bet fight like ever? Wasn't this crazy fight they did in, in MMA? Oh, it was an MMA fight. Well, it was kind it was of a Mayweather. 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 It was Mayweather versus crossover McGregor. type th- McGregor, and it so was a, a weird thing, weird. and apparently this is considered like the best bet ever because Mayfield, uh, May- Mayweather. Mayweather had essentially a hundred percent chance of beating him. Well, Yet I mean, many it, people it, wanted to bet. They were crossover the... <laughs> two different things, MMA and actual boxing, and they were kind right. of fighting under the boxing. Under the boxing. No, so... it was a boxing match. Yeah, it, it was a boxing match. Speaking of boxing matches, my God, there's this massive heavyweight fight. They had the biggest gate in I don't know decades. No, no, ever. right, right. Uh, was it ever? Uh, it was ever. It, it was broke. Close. It broke the record for Holyfield versus I forget who. That's it. it was actually the number one. Gate it was match about seventeen million dollars. Just in explain gate. to me a little bit about that. How is it the boxing, which seems such a kind of on the on the periphery sport, is it because there are so few major events that when there is these events, all the interest pours in and it turns into this massive thing? Uh, the, the numbers that I saw that actually I think they came from Paul, who we were just talking to. At least he referred us to him. All in, it was like 160 million. It wasn't just the gate there, like the television rights. Well, the, you know, to, the television rights to buy 60 million to watch that cost you 60, 80, 120 dollars to watch it at home. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. they, I mean, they have some costs, but they're not crazy costs for this single event. So it's this wildly profitable. At the very top, it's just absurdly profitable, despite being a kind of a peripheral sport. Yeah, I think for the, for example, the fight you just mentioned, uh, McGregor Mayweather. I think Mayweather made well over a hundred million dollars yes. for that one fight. Two seventy five. Two hundred seventy five. What's amazing okay. about it is if you look at the at the most highly compensated athletes, the boxers are number one. The, but not the average. Uh, well, at the no, top, no, 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 no. But you'd expect the, the LeBron. You expect the ba- the best. Players in each sport, the ones in football and well, basketball, so what to make more. What but the, well, let me the, say the, what we're saying is that there's, it's, it's just more convex. Focused. It's more convex yeah. than compensation in any, probably any other sport. But let me also comment about the fight that just happened. Remember, these were two undefeated fighters. So one was like 42. The only thing they, they, they had they a tied. draw. Yeah. No, no. That's yeah. still undefeated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were one was forty two zero and one. The other was twenty nine zero and one. So these were two, and also they call it the lineal heavy. I, you know, there's like eighteen different belts for the heavyweight championship, but one of them's actually the lineal champion. Mean you know went through Holy Tyson Holyfield. You know you could go to Vladimir Klitschko and then this guy. So I mean I'm saying this is one of the two guys. Yeah. Wilder was the legitimate heavyweight champion in my view the lineal champion not these fractional belts and so that why this was a big fight yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay quick trivia eric i think most if we were to say how many belts we'd like randomly jump ju- jump at a number you your 18 might i be was a mean. joke it's not the real how number. many how many categories of of fighters boxers can you name weight categories can you name just give us a rundown. Right? I don't know, eight to ten. Let's do. How many can let's, you name? Okay. Well, I mean, you could start with. I mean, there's probably the well, lightest. We start with how many we can name. <laughs> I, I, I th- there's featherweight, right? There's super featherweight. Then there's you know there's middleweight, super middleweight. There's lightweight. There's super lightweight. There's light heavyweight. There's heavyweight. So what about fly? Welterweight. Welterweight. Those are good ones. All right. So there's ten. It didn't impress as much as we thought. All right. Sorry. Let's go. Let's go to more impressive people. Joe Lemire, our guest in this next half hour. Lemire. I'm sorry. Joe Lemire. Mispronunciation. Joe Lemire, our guest in this half hour, is a senior writer at Sports Techie. We're about to hear about Sports Techie. He uh, what did a political science degree at Virginia, went on to become a writer, Sports Illustrated staff writer. His work has been published all over in fancy places like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Grantland. 
Bleacher Report, and he's doing just a bunch of interesting stuff that we're excited to hear about. Joe, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for the kind introduction. Great to be here. Uh, delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I've been in New York City for about 13 years now. So it's, you, you uh, haven't left New York City in 13 years. <laughs> no, not not once. Actually, not it's once. Kind of weird. I mean, you can <laughs> you can do a lot in New York. You can do a lot. Maybe you don't need to leave. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, listen, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Sport Techie and what you guys are about. And then um, with once we have a little background, we want to get into some of these articles you've been writing. Sure. Um, well, you know, as you sort of laid out a little bit of my background, I moved to New York originally um, to when I accepted the job at, at Sports Illustrated. And while I was there, I, I primarily covered Major League Baseball. Um, and I'm someone who definitely from the, the more new age modern analytics, you know, as your show even says, money ball school of thought and, and approaching the game. And so I was always mindful more of the, the data. But as um you know, kind of as my career progressed, you, know, you start seeing more technologies collecting new data. And so it sort of became a natural um, shift in, in attention and interest to, to start seeing some of the, whether it was wearable devices, there's, you know, all these optical cameras. I mean, there's every, there's a gadget for everything these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and sports technology is becoming this massive multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and, um, you know, my work has appeared in a lot of those places largely because, as many of you know, print media is not exactly the most stable profession these days. Mm-hmm. So I have jumped around a, a few times, but I've been fortunate to, to find some pretty good homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the in, uh, summer of 2017, um, I'd already become a pretty regular sport techie reader just from that, you know, aforementioned interest in, in the technology of it. And they had an opening and you know everything kind of came to, came together. So, uh, you know, I've been here about two and a half years and you know, I often get the question, like, what do you write about? Like, how much, much technology is there? And even someone who I thought was a pretty keen observer of the space has found way more going on than I ever imagined. Yeah, uh, for sure. Within within Sport Techie, we kind of have three large pillars that we, we, we think about. We think about the athlete and player performance. And I think because of my background covering much of the on-field action at previous stops, that's definitely the area that interests me the most. And I probably have the most knowledge, but we do a lot also with fan engagement and even what you I heard a little bit of the, the, the conversation prior about boxing and you know the over the top streaming is certainly a, a major component of, of mm-hmm. what we cover and it's change, really changing things and you have entrance entrance into the space like the zone who's trying to like shake up that pay-per-view model with a monthly subscription but then you end up filling it with a lot of these lesser known boxers and that's a whole other conversation for another time hmm. um, but and but also within fan engagement you see a lot more you know whether it's augmented reality, you know, stats on, on television or, mm-hmm. you know, gimmicks at stadiums. Um, and then certainly, um, you know, team and league operations is that third area, whether it's, you know, instant replay, stadium security, you know, anything that uh, touches that space. So that's, All right. that's kind of who Sport Techie is, but I feel like we have to keep reinventing ourselves as the industry changes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting place to in- reinvent yourself because there has been so much change in that direction. So I, I agree. I, I I agree. Just you know, being around these sports, and we have folks come through here and talk technology. Not even talk technology necessarily. Let's just talk about you know what what the, where the advances are, and so often they're related to technology. But even when you think you know, there's more stuff going on. So you've got some pieces on here we'd like to hear more about, and they're uh, most of them are examples of things people probably don't know are going on. So for example, talk about this this piece on clothes. The 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 mm-hmm. you did this just maybe a, a few weeks ago, February piece on smart apparel. What is it that's going on with technology and and, and clothing in sports? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating one where yeah, I think the average consumer might track, you know, Apple Watch, Fitbit, you know, those kinds of things. The the um, the elite athletes, um, you know, at least in the outdoor sports like soccer, American football, and whatnot, and even indoor sports that often, whether it's GPS or a radio frequency, but a lot of them have these positional trackers that they wear between their shoulder blades, and that gives tons of of movement data, you know, whether it's around the court or the field, um, but. It's just like an extra thing you have to think about. And often, you know, if you see a soccer, uh, you know, if a soccer superstar scores a goal, rips his shirt off in celebration, you often see what looks like a, a sports bra almost. It's this, these harnesses that are holding onto these gadgets. And they're so important to what they do that the, even the elite players generally wear them in matches. But there are certainly complaints that they are uncomfortable and you know, this, that, and the other thing. Athlete compliance is always a major issue when it comes to trying something new. And needless to say, it's a very superstitious profession. Um, and so clothes, everyone wears clothes. And so this is kind of the natural progression of making this a more frictionless experience for not only the elite athletes, but even um, even the everyday person. I don't think you know, the, the average um, you know, a person who's just tracking steps on Fitbit is going to suddenly go out and buy expensive smart apparel. Um, but, you know, especially with the, the burgeoning Peloton CrossFit, you know, niche, there's a lot more of the what we in our industry we, we call prosumer, those like halfway between professional and, and consumer product um, space. Um, and they're someone who probably would be interested in getting clothing that's, you know, has embedded sensors that you, know, you don't really feel. They just um, are, are in the textile and some of them can track heart rate. Um, you know, muscle activity, um, positional, um, you know, uh, movement as well. Um, and then the, the next step, that that's sort of starting to take place the last few years, but a, a company called the Sensei is kind of at the forefront of this, where they're now take, collecting enough of that data from the movement and combining it with some, you know, senior, you know, some coaching experience. And they're able to coach you in real time from afar using an artificial intelligence platform. You know, the first product was rowing. And so, you could get on your Concept2 rowing machine that you know that most gyms will have. You know, you put onto the app, and actually, like Eric Murray is this New Zealand rower, is pretty famous in the rowing community. He has two gold medals, and he was one of their first, um, you know, coaches that they hired to, to provide. And you know, you put up your smartphone next to the uh, telemetry machine of the rowing. You know, he'll be rowing, and you kind of row along with him, and his voice will guide you when you make you know, sort of missteps because it's plugged into the, the Concept2 rowing machine. And if you, you know, pull too quickly, you might say, hey, you're working too hard with your hands, focus more on your leg. The fact that it can adapt in real time and understand what's going on is sort of beyond <laughs> what I think a lot of us would have considered possible even a few years ago. So th that that does sound super interesting and useful, but I didn't, I missed the clothing piece on that example in particular because it sounded like you just with the, the phone and, oh, okay. and the yeah. proper piece yeah, of equipment. Sure. So yeah, what are so the they, what's they, the clothes they, contributing in that in that situation? Okay, they, yeah. So they they started with the the machine only, but now in in about two months uh, or maybe actually later this month at this point, um, they are releasing some of their own smart apparel um, and actually hopefully long term. I think since they want to partner with others, they don't really want to be a textile company. They want to you know work with others who are already producing it. Um, but at the moment, it's just engaging based on how quickly you're pulling back on, on the rowing handle. But once you're also wearing clothes, it'll have a lot more granular detail of um, what exactly the, the, the problem is. And they're also moving into other sports where like yoga, um, you know, TRX uses a lot of resistance bands to, to do some basic cross training. Um, and, and in those examples, it'll have, um, you know, you'll be pulling on the band and it'll say, you know, 
it'll be able to detect an asymmetry between your two arms as you're as you're yeah, born. Right. It, 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 yeah, right. So, yeah. So, Joe, is it able to guide you? Is it is it is it at the moment? Is it mostly just sensors? So it's like being it's like being wired. You know, we, we we saw this in golf twenty years ago, and it's kind of progressed from there. But instead of this uncomfortable, difficult to manage thing, it's just a shirt you put on. All of a sudden, like you're perfectly tracked. But does it have any? Does it does do the sensors ever go the other direction? Do they have this kind of feedback mechanism? You can imagine where they could kind of give you a little buzz, jolt. yeah, a little yeah. jolt. If you're, I mean, consider just like we're all kind of slouching around these microphones well, exists, right now. Right. Yeah. So if we were wearing these sensor t-shirts, we could be getting shocks from someone telling us to stand up correctly, right, or stand, sit up more upright. Do they, is that part of the technology, or is that coming, or do you have any sense of? Yeah, that? I, I think I don't I think I don't think a sensei specifically is doing that, but I know there's a company not uh, I'm going to play, wearable X that has a yoga pants that gently vibrate when you're out of position so you can sort of be corrected and then it'll have like it'll have a, a more gentle hum when you are in correct position so wow. I mean, that technology is there as well okay joe this is adi weiner I, I you mentioned the word artificial intelligence uh and i want to push on this a little bit because what i've seen a lot in the training data in particular is it's not really it's just collection of data and they do the basic things like as you notice there's a heterogeneity in in rates there's there's a changes in average um you're out of position so that's i imagine what we're talking about here is there use of artificial intelligence at a genuinely higher level or are you really trying to find something much deeper in the data that isn't obvious yeah i, I mean they certainly say they are um you know it's the the challenge of any technology writer and the sports technology where it's often held as state secrets exactly you know everything's right. a black box and mm-hmm. so it's hard to see uh, under the hood um but i, I know you know, at the very least, um, the uh, there are, you know, even if you look at the NBA, where you have the second spectrum tracking data, where you have the, the optical cameras, um, you know, they're starting to progress. It's not just, um, you know, from this point of the the court, he's shooting this percentage. You know, there's becomes a lot more of like the expected field goal percentage. Uh, there's a lot more. You know, they know the distance from the the closest defender, so they they are able to take it to the next level and extrapolate the data. Um, but it's perhaps not as you know far out there ai it's probably not harnessing the full ai capability yet but, um, but they're moving in that direction I mean, this is a typical kind of rate of progress or generation by generation we have to collect the data first so they're, they're, right. this, this technology well, is allowing us to collect finer data more conveniently from more places more continuously and then the next generation would be how we process right that. so um, for example i mean this is something that is interesting i mean interesting to me is like finding something in the data that we don't know already we just don't have it. like if i had the data i know i could compute so a lot of that in basketball yeah. is happening if i knew where the defender was or where you shot from i can get much more yeah. measures accurate yeah. measures of how, yeah. how good you are yeah. because i can take into that into account but an artificial intelligence would step that up to find something that you don't know yet so yeah. for example or, for example with training data where they're talking about looking at your bodily inputs your heart yeah. rates etc and trying to figure out are you ready to train today so like we could never but, know that okay but Adi, so right? let's, let's, without artificial let's, intelligence. let's tap into your statistical expertise because ai is so overblown right now it's so well, yes. oversold and, and everyone's like think thinks it's going to fix everything what's your sense if we're we're, 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 we're I mean, we're sitting here talking to joe lemire who's writing about technology and he's got all these examples and then you want to know okay great when is it when can ai i mean maybe 10 years from now before ai how much data do you think you would need how many people need to be wearing these yoga outfits for how long until you as a statistician would trust that any promise somebody made about ai would actually have validity 
Well, at least 10 years, but because right now I think there's overselling of the word. Mm-hmm. People are really talking, they don't really mean AI, they mean data. Yeah. I mean, the real selling point is the fact that we have this data now, we can do things we couldn't do. Yeah. They throw on the word AI just to make it sound fancy, but there are going to be accomplishments, and those are going to be the really interesting ones. And I think that, that when they happen, they're going to be transformative. I think the example in training analytics, I think there's, that's the frontier. I mean, we don't know when we're ready to train. And we've been hearing from a lot of people in our show saying we have this technology that's going to tell you how hard you should work out today or whether you're overdoing it while you're doing it. I mean, I worked out yesterday and I thought about 45 minutes in, I've gone too far. And maybe my watch should start beeping at me going, you know, you're schmendrick. This is, you know, your heart rate's too high or it's something that's going to happen. And artificial intelligence is going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but I can tell you it hasn't happened yet. So Joe, what what's yeah, your sense are, of... Yeah, just if I may Please. follow up on that. Uh, there are some companies, there's one named Zone 7 that's been working particularly with European soccer companies that is purporting to do exactly that, where it ingests every you know data mm-hmm. point it can, a lot from wearables, and it tries to predict injuries. Um, you know, They've had some success rate, or at least, but again, it's so small and teams are so small, it's hard to really know how significant any of that is. Um, and, but the, the one story that I, I'm probably the only person who has multiple favorite wearable technology stories to share, but the number one <laughs> is that... Uh, uh, Nate Burleson, who's now a, you know, a pretty well-known commentator during his NFL career, his final season, he was trying to latch on to the Cleveland Browns. He'd been hurt through a lot of training camp, working his way back in. says he's having the best practice of camp, thinks he's going to make the team, and all of a sudden he gets a tap on the shoulder. The wide receiver coach says, hey, your catapult wearable that's been tracking all of your, your load today says you're done. You've hit your threshold. You probably shouldn't. You just sit out the rest of practice. But he was so determined to make the team because he was playing well. He says, no, no, let me get back out there. And granted, this is a one in a million kind of story, but he says on the very next route he runs, he tears his hamstring. Oh, God. Eventually gets cut from the Browns and ends up retiring and ending his career prematurely because of that injury. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so every now and then, obviously, that's the. We're, the, the you know, we're, we're, you we're an analytics it. shop, but, we, but and we're not supposed to be impressed with those kind of anecdotes, but it's still a hell of an anecdote. We love yeah. anecdotes. <laughs> not just, we're just trying to generalize from them. Yeah. I mean, so there's, a, I mean, there's a companies that are they're providing essentially this kind of technology. They, they, they watch how you perform and they try to forecast whether you're going to yeah. be injured. And, and I know that Penn Campus, lots of universities, lots of professionals have invested in this technology. But the data is not public. We can't see what they actually do. They're not. They tend to be quite well, resistant it's, it's, to it's be even, studying. It's even more challenging because the folks who study these things for a living, it's it's not quite as bad as the field of nutrition, where the New York Times is publishing a completely conflicting finding every other month, right? But <laughs> with itself. <laughs> but physiology, the exercise science is still grappling with some of the same challenges. It's that's not quite. It's, there's, it's not quite as rigorous. The samples aren't as big. That there aren't these big findings. And I, th- yet. And I think we, we shouldn't minimize just how challenging the endeavor it's really super is. Challenging. Because I mean, you know, so much of this when we talk about basically human physiology is is the, the we talk the heterogeneity among people. And also the fact that so much of the training data, at least in this kind of first wave of the technology, is on kind of athlete, you know, well-honed athletes. For this to be kind of tra- transformative to, for people like me. Yeah. It's going to require a huge amount of training data, right. like on on a, a much wider kind of swath but, of the population. You know, let, let's, what, you let, run, what you end up running into is that also, of course, when you get to the elite level, players become so guarded about their data and it gets shared even less. And right. 
pushing the levels of performance. Uh, I mean, it's amazing walking around various professional clubhouses and asking players and how much resistance and, and fear there is about the data. It's much less so now as younger generations are, are coming up and they're getting a little more used to it along the way. But I remember a few years ago, you know, going around baseball clubhouses and there was clearly some sort of union talking point where it's going to be used against us. And sure. you, you would think the optimistic viewpoint is that at the very least it would be zero sum and that for every guy who's like, hey, you're going to need Tommy John in two years, we're not going to sign you long term, there's going to be somebody else that they realize, oh, wait, there's more untapped potential. You're sturdier than we thought. We're going to give you more money. Right. It's just a matter of the allocation of it. Right. Um, but yeah. it's like there is this, this terrific bargaining issue where who's going to get the rents from this greater information? And, and, and the players and individuals, understandably, don't want the teams to have all of the power and extract all of the value. That should, in, 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 in fair bargaining, they should derive some of the value themselves. By the way, it's it's less of an issue in college for better or worse because there's they have more control over the athletes and um it's a lot of interesting exercise science going on not just in the major sports but in the olympic sports on college campuses especially at the big well-funded universities so it's a it's such a terrific field i mean we sit here and we we're skeptical of ai as we should be and we're and we're and we're and there's a long you know it's a long runway on these things but man if there were if a person could could decide to get into this now and they could have a career in front of them that's all interesting questions great way to make a contribution open field really open field mm-hmm. on an exploding technology and 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 value not just to professional athletes but to amateur athletes and to, and to, and to us schmutz is sitting here just trying to be healthy that's right actually one of the things i think is amazing about this is that you do something for the professionals there's the college there's the high school and then there's the middle school and then there's your recreational athletes we all care about it yeah. it's yeah. just a pyramid that's vast at the bottom joe give us another one of your favorite wearable stories i'm 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 I'm, op- I'm up for a good anecdote give us another one <laughs> Okay, actually, uh, sort of relevant to what you're talking uh, about in terms of athletes being able to get some uh, some uh, monetization out of the data, like if they're being forced to share it. Uh, Australia is uh, one just because of their Institute of Sports Science. They've been kind of at the forefront of, of, right. of this research and field for a while. Um, but also their professional sports are not nearly as lucrative as those here, and so their athletes are more willing to take, um, you know, like – if a, co- if a company comes along and says, hey, we want to sponsor some sort of uh, tracking data feature in a, in a TV match, like the money at a major league level is going to be so little, but for an Australian rugby player, suddenly that's significant. And so uh, a few years ago, they have this, what they call the state of origin, or sort of this um, this major rugby match based on where people are actually, players are born, kind of like an all-star type of match. Uh, and so at the end of one of these matches, they're... Um, a guy is about to attempt the, the rugby equivalent of a field goal, and the, and the game, the match is on the line. But because of one of these sponsorship deals, his heart rate is being broadcast on the screen in real time. And wow. you wonder, everyone sitting at home is going to assume, like, oh, if that were me, my heart would be going a gazillion miles per oh, hour right. um, or kilometers per hour. It's Australia. But this guy is such a well trained, focused athlete. His heart rate actually lowered to the oh lowest point it had been in the entire match. And he made the field goal, oh my and the God. kicker that it turns out after the match he had a an injured shoulder that would like cost him the rest of his season that he had been playing through. Uh, wow. So good, that's so good. Wow, that's so cool. It's so, and it suggests this whole. I mean, look, here's the beautiful thing, Odd. He's like collect the data, and now we'll know what questions asked. Now we can ask how people respond differently under different pressure. We would have gone yeah. our heart rate would have been crazy, but yeah. the guys who are trained, and then you can see progress oh. as you get better at this. And how you, I mean, this is a I measurable know, way to look at. I love data, and, and yeah. can't deny that. And and there's so many problems that if if we only had the data, we would be able to solve something. But what I'm seeing is a little bit of the reverse: is we get this new data. 
data without necessarily a problem. And then the people think, oh, it's got to tell us something interesting. So, for example, they're now doing your you know, DNA analysis and telling you what kind of foods you should be eating. I mean, really? I mean, maybe that's true. <laughs> But this is, are we really at that okay, point? All right. Fair. Fair. No, but, no, but, I mean, again, the prom- but, 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 in a business not- sense, the promises are obviously going to be exaggerated of what is currently being delivered. Okay, but do you think- but I, I still think the potential to actually deliver on that is realizable. Some, exactly. Some yeah. domains, some, we, have to have, we have to have educated guesses ahead of time on what the value of going forward is. So your idea about you know, nutrition as a function of genetics, great. Let's be skeptical. But, but go back five years, and we all knew that motion tracking was going to transform football. Sure. We, we, and we still would say like five years, ten years from now, the stats are going to be completely different because of motion tracking. Well, because we, we saw knew, that. We knew no, that we, if you wrote down, if we had that data, we could solve the problem. I could see what I could no, do with it. but we also knew that when we had the data, we'd start asking different questions. Like, we don't even know. We, we knew five years ago that if we start collecting these data, we're going to be doing things four, five, six years from now that we can't even imagine right now, yeah. but they're going to be worthwhile. We just were certain. And, and, and so it's, it's interesting. You're raising an interesting point. In some domains, we should bring more skepticism. In some domains, it's like, no, we know. It's like going to the moon. We're going to learn a lot. Somehow we're going to develop technologies that will have other value if we go in that direction. That's the way, for example, motion tracking felt. So, Joe, this is Eric Brother. I want to ask you a question. Obviously, starting this week, we have something very important in my life, which is the NFL Combine. <laughs> Do you see a day? How many important things can you have in your no, life? No, you've got, eating, well, you've NFL, got a wife, MMA, you've got three kids. Infinite. Turns out infinite. Well, this one's important. Sleep. No, this one's that. important, though. Do you ever see a day where maybe it happens already, we just don't see the data? where all the players trying out on the combine actually are wearing all types of wearable suits, and now all of a sudden we can get much deeper insight. It's not the three-cone drill time. It's not the 40-yard time. It's not how many times they bench press. It's possibly things that could actually be correlated with skills and things you need in the NFL. Do you ever see that happening? Yeah, I I do, partly because they haven't signed a contract, and so they're not covered by any players' association or union. And so all of them have Interesting. You know, no leverage at all, and they're trying to curry favor with the people, their potential employers. And right. So I think you're gonna, that's probably about as willing of an audience as you're going to find. And in fact, actually, at the Senior Bowl, you know, one of those exhibition games, um, they, um, Zebra, which, of course, does the tracking data for the NFL, also does it for the Senior Bowl. And even with um, the chips inside the football, which have been – a closely guarded state secret in the NFL. No one knows what Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or anybody actually throws. That's data points that have never really seeped out there. Okay. But the senior bowl data does come out. And so the last two or three years, the quarterbacks, for instance, you can see who throws the tightest spiral, who throws the ball the farthest. And there's a number of those kind of data points that are starting to come out. Um, but yes, I think you're probably thinking a little bit more about the, the biometric physiology. Exactly. You know, the, heart, the heart rate and muscle activity. And I, I do think that is... Um, probably not that far off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one could maybe counter-argue that if we have all these wearables on these athletes throughout their entire college career, would we have enough data on them and sort of the game situations we're interested in where the combine would become actually less relevant? We would yeah, no, know, we would no longer that need that. Anymore, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's TV <laughs> revenue, I think, at this point. <laughs> it's entertainment. Eric's, Eric's just concerned. For, he wants more. Eric's the only person in the world who thinks the combine needs to measure more things. <laughs> Well, I think also you're going to have the, the issue where, uh, I forget the exact number, what, 120 Division I French schools? I mean, the the top 20 are probably using the most advanced technology on par with any NFL team or more, but I think your bottom 
losing anything. And so yeah. you're, it's going to be a while before that gap gets closed enough where you feel like you've got enough comprehensive data on everybody. Got it. So, Joe, just in the last minute or two here, can, can you point us in a direction of what you think is, like, next? And there's probably a lot. But if, if you were to say, look, go dig more into this or keep an eye out for this broadly, categorically, what direction would you point us? Yeah, as much as we've been talking about sensors, I think the, the direction we should be looking at, and at least at the elite level in the near future, is cameras. And it's just, again, the athlete compliance not wanting to you know, sign up to wear something that might be uncomfortable. But also with cameras, you don't really need their permission. There are already so many cameras on every major league, NFL, NBA, you know, competition field. Um, and at the baseball winter meetings the last two years, major the, the league has organized a technology expo, um, you know, two or three dozen of the you know, next and best, you know, for the, the teams to, to survey and walk around. And I've had the, the chance to, to join them. And the, the absolute clear um, trend from this year uh, was the, the, the prevalence of these optical camera mm-hmm. systems that are providing a lot of the same kind of motion capture data, you know, uh, joint angles and, mm-hmm. and uh, movement data that's so much less intrusive. Um, and so I think um, that's, that's what you should be looking out for. It'll be a while before that becomes cost-effective for an, an average person to, to try to replicate, um, although there are certainly some companies trying to harness the smartphone camera to do that. Terrifically interesting, Joe. I can tell you that there are some papers that were submitted and or will be talked about at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in a couple of weeks that look at not just cameras you know, in, in the presence of the athlete, but like how much you can extract from television broadcast, just literally the video can you go sure. in and extract some of the same motion? Obviously, the further away we get from sensor to camera next to them to video, it's harder. But it's you know if you can do it, there's more economies, mm-hmm. and eventually that that's where it's going to go. But guys are already doing that, and papers are presented at MIT here in a few weeks on exactly that issue. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's uh, certainly moving in, uh, very rapidly in that direction. Joe, listen, thanks for taking the time. Um, we don't always jump in quite as heavily as we did with you. I think that speaks to how interesting the work is. And uh, we wish you the best with it, and we hope to talk with you more down the road. Yeah, thanks. It was my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Joe Lemire, senior writer at Sports Techie. He was a Sports Illustrated staff writer, published all over the place, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Ringer, and most of his contributions now can be found at Sport Techie. You can follow him on Twitter, by the way. We're going to dig up his, his account. His handle is at Lemire Joe. Lemire is L E M I R E. Joe, at Lemire Joe. That's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Whole crew is in here today. Shane, Audie, Eric, this is Cade. You guys can be also. Jump in here. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. 1-844-942-7866. We are genuinely interested in hearing from you. Happy to have a phone call from you. You can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, real time even. Send us questions, observations, whatever you got, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. Just off the phone with our second guest of the show, Joe Lemire. Terrifically interesting, covers technology and sports. Always something interesting there. 
You know, things yep. are coming down the pike that change sport, change analysis, change TV. It also has the most direct impact in sort of our lives because it's something I can actually use eventually. Yeah, yeah eventually it trickles down to <laughs> yep. the non-professional athletes, yep. so it's so much fun. Uh, we could just do that. I think we could I'd do love that. to play professional baseball, but it ain't happening. <laughs> so, so give me <laughs> some of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me some rowing clothes. You can tell me how my form is on, on the rowing machine. So, guys, we've got a handful of things to run through in in uh, in this half hour. A bunch of interesting stories here and there. Before we before we dive into some of them, first, how about this Zamboni driver who goes into? Oh, goal I know for the, the emergency goaltender. Yes, it's happened it's before, amazing. but yeah, it has doesn't happened. happen very often. No, it does not happen very often. So here's the story. The, 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 what you may not know is that they have a standby goaltender at, in these in the NHL, and in case because teams carry for like either two. Team. teams typically only carry two goaltend like actually dressed up real goaltenders so for a game. In, in, so some there's some possibility both those goaltenders get injured in a game. And so a guy is sitting there, and he might go in for either team. And the guy in this case was a, he's a he was a, he does place 42 years old though 42 years old he i think he practices he's on the practice squad with the leafs maybe the, marlins, the marlins i think which is one of yeah, yeah their the, minor yeah, league yeah, their yeah. top yeah. minor league team yeah. and he's a zamboni driver for the leafs or the marlies i think he was a zamboni for the marlies as well yeah but hurricanes lose both their uh tenders and he goes in and they're up like three nil or something and then I'm sorry, you don't say nil and you don't. Do you. <laughs> you don't. That sounded very weird. But yeah, but it, regardless, he 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 actually, I think he uh, I think no. he stopped eight out of ten shots. But he I gave think. up the yeah. first the two. First, the first, first, two. first two first shots two. settled down. And just as glorious, well, lights out from there. Lights out from there. You know what you don't know is how much, how differently yeah. they the get. I think something like five hundred dollars for the game. I think it's that's a, what is he right. got. Yeah, five hundred dollars is the pay for the game. He got to keep his jersey. There's all kinds of random How facts. How did they have a jersey ready for him? I mean, they, they didn't. Well, they, didn't. they actually showed the video. So they had a blank jersey, and you could see they literally were sewing the letters on. Oh uh-huh. They didn't have a jersey ready for him. Yeah. Okay. They, Matter of fact, why they, they actually, bothered to sew his name on the jersey? They did, yeah. but he actually ended up wearing the pants of one team, the jersey of another, and his helmet, his mask, was actually whatever that minor league this team is. This is making Marley's, me Marley's, Marley's, He had a Marley's Very helmet. nostalgic for the kind of pickup hockey games I used to play where it was just kind of any, any anybody who could play went in. It didn't matter what team. What does it say about hockey? Not about the technicalities, but the ability of a, the Zamboni driver to play goalie. Yeah. Could you imagine a beer league softball pitcher coming yeah. in and playing against MLB p- players? Yeah, no, I mean, that would be ridiculous. Th- this is well, I mean, the... for 10 shots, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, we, I, I don't think they necessarily, you know, I think he's, he's probably not going to get signed long term. You know, I mean, he, but he, there's he, a lot of stochastic. Yeah. Would you br- would you bring in a beer league uh, a softball player for a one at bat? Because they often, you know, when, yeah, when they, for a strikeout, this sure shirt's called the pitcher. The, <laughs> no, the scenario, the scenario, like the the, the an analog to baseball. It's these crazy 16-inch games where you run out of pitchers, and all of a sudden, like, your outfielder right. or shortstops, like, throw it, like, and, is, and, is the pitcher. Right. And, and they, they don't do hammered. very well, but they you get do hammered. it. But they're professional athletes. <laughs> I mean, that's the difference. I mean, you're either out of position. I guess but my question is, why don't, they move, why don't they move one of the other players? I mean, why don't you get a, a position player in hockey to play goalie? It's a very game. different that's... kind of thing, and you'd be risking injury to somebody you actually cared about. All right, so that's a good answer. And that's interesting. I think, also, so but I think it does say, it has to say something though i agree with you adi it has to say something about you know what we'll call there's i don't call it a flat maximum because i don't want to imply that there aren't excellent goalies but it does have to say something that well, it's a flat minimum that's what you're yes. saying yes yes, yes. 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 It's yeah. a very, yeah. the gain yes. the, 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 the curve at the top is no, very, I mean, very I, shallow no that's right and i mean i would sort of say 70 yes. percent 
like probably you can get to 70% of professional goaltending quality just by having a very large body and standing in the net. But that other that other 20 <laughs> 28%, you know, 30% is is actually going to be speaking important. Of which, yeah. Speaking of which, Neil Payne, yeah. our, our, our buddy Neil Payne at 538 has a recent piece on NHL coaches. So a lot of turnover in yeah. NHL coaching. So something like, you know, half half the league in the last in the last 12 months. So uh, seven or eight at the end of the last season and seven or eight already this season. So they've had 15 of 31 teams have changed their coaches. It, it turns out that this this being let go is highly related to goaltender performance. Mm. So Interesting. The guys poor they, performance by your yeah, goalie is yeah. well, isn't yeah. that kind of like means you've given up a lot of shots? Isn't that kind of yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> so I mean, so you using, badly, using, you've lost. Using, I mean, all these are correlated. Well, this is the thing we we know we we've just been talking about goaltender performance. How much randomness is yep. involved there? And these guys who end up at the bottom of these goaltender rankings, especially mid season. There must be massive mean reversion. No, no, that's right. And I think, you know, I, I don't know why this dynamic is happening right now, but I, I, I think coaches are generally, A, being kind of scapegoated, I think, a little bit for team kind of, you know, like just a lack of execution or even just kind of the randomness of, of day, yeah. day-to-day hockey. And, yeah, I think owners are being very impatient. Owners, general managers, et cetera, are being very impatient. So I mean, big- I think even in, like, most sports, I think coaches get let go on average more – Often than they should. Yeah, and we we certainly observe yeah. this. I think in football and in hockey, it's kind of a very extreme yeah. example of that right now. But it, it's rare that you can tie it to um, a performance as clearly as this seems to be tied, and especially performance that is so random. Yeah. So you're basically yeah. saying there's less, there's not that much signal in half a season of goaltender performance, and yet it's very diagnostic of the coach <laughs> right. keeping his job. I'm curious yeah. how he did this because you have to obviously have to control for the defense kind of collapsing as well. Yeah. And your offense, I mean. I, Neil not, wasn't running a big model here, but he was basically showing you know stats on offense, stats on defense, and stats of goaltender. It kind of jumps out as, as more important. Um, Interesting news out of the Combine. That time of year, the Combine mm-hmm. over in Indianapolis, this thing runs for almost a week. They have different position groups going through drills on Eric different days. They do interviews. The Big Bowl, the Big Data Bowl that Michael Lopez and the NFL have put on, uh, their finalists present out there. So it's this. And I can tell you that it's the it's the one place of the year where the entire league shows up. I mean, this everybody's there. Coaches are there. Personnel's there. Front office is there. Everybody gathers. And so all of these things are going down in Indy right now. And of course, what you know, despite that, what we're talking about is the size of Joe Burrow's hands. And this nine-inch thing mm-hmm. is just extraordinary. That this would be a news story. Is it the case? Might it be the case that it's so ridiculous that it's actually going to finally kill this myth? Or no, is the myth is, unkillable? Is it, is it really? Uh, I know everyone talks about it, but do people, do people really act on it? I sure. Mean, so they do. So you're yeah. saying that it, they actually do? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I mean, they're they're considering. A million facts about these guys, but there's no more important player in sports than quarterbacks, and yes. so there's no harder challenge than which of these guys should go. And they're con- they're considering everything. The challenge is they get start considering things they shouldn't. Yeah. So I was just going to ask. I'm going to frame the question a little bit differently. Not whether he should be, if you'd like, disqualified as the number one pick, given he has you know no. nine inch hands. If I told you, if I showed you the same film, had the same grades on everything. But instead, I told you his hands were 10 inches, 9 and 7 eighths, whatever it is, some very large number. Would that change your opinion at all? I think the answer has to be yes. I'm asking a different question, which is not that it's disqualifying him, but I'm saying conditional on the body of evidence we have. If I just changed his hand size from 9 inches to, let's say, 1 inch bigger, 
would you would you grade him at all I love, higher? I love it when Eric, yeah. who is so knowledgeable and so sophisticated in so many ways, says such crazy things. No, that's it's, not it's, crazy. It is completely crazy. The answer, no. I think what Kate is saying, the answer is no. He would change no, his I, I want to be clear. You're not saying my question is crazy because we, we uh, you're no, not asking you're, you're saying my you answer would. is crazy. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I just want to be clear <laughs> yes, about that. Yeah. And I have no problem question with what you're saying. Very good. Yeah. You're you're basically saying the multiple regression coefficient Correct. is is either high or low and what Kate is saying it's zero. Yeah, it yeah. Has Your to be hand zero. hand has not I mean obviously it might Why? be Now what one would argue you, what evidence do you have that it's zero? I haven't run the data, but apparently people have run the data. Well, the, there's a problem because you no. don't get to run an experiment, and we don't get to move, change someone's hands and keeping everything else the same. So that is, it's not like it's obvious that the answer is. I think that... No, that, it's not I mean, obvious. I mean, exactly. I don't think it is obvious. I do believe that there's enough uh, a talent all around to recognize that this is just uncorrelated. I don't understand the point here at the end. So I, I think it's sufficiently no, uncorrelated. If it's uncorrelated, how well, we, 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 we can't run an actual experiment on it, and so we have to look at the data that we do have, and the Which data that we, we do, do have all the time. We, the, the data way. we right. do have has said, suggests that there's no effect. So yeah. you're saying? Right. So but we, on the other we hand, we conclude that marginally there's no effect. Marginally, no effect. But yeah. you're you're somehow saying that oh it's completely realistic that there would no, be a no, no, significant no. I'm, I'm partial saying, effect I'm absence of, Joe, of evidence Joe Burrow. is not evidence of absence. I mean that's essentially what we can't actually know for sure. All the data suggests it has no no actual value, but you can't retreat into the you know this cloud of ah well you can't ever really know. This is this is a classic statistical conundrum. Con- con- right. I just in th- in this case I think the Bur- you know. If if I was to try and inco- like if I'm a scout arguing that we should move Burrow out of the number one slot, like I w- I'm a Cincinnati scout I'm, saying we should yeah, not draft Joe Burrow because he has small it's very hands. Practical. It's the burdens on me to yes, kind of show exactly. that the and small hands no, and you have not met that be. burden at all. Right? Yeah, I, was, I would like that's being good practical consultants and yeah. just say, okay, we have a, we have a guy on a board. Do we bump him up or down based on this new piece of information? I'm gonna, but I'm gonna turn around and say I don't want to argue the other side here, but. We don't in statistics. We don't want to believe in something if there's no data to show it. Right? That's a, that's a premise. On the other hand, if we have a mechanism, that sometimes gets credit. So mm-hmm. I think what, what so if and I don't understand the football, but somebody in football ha- has a story, a mechanism, a causality that says bigger Correct. hands matter in some context. How you does that story go? A tighter spiral or something? What like is that? it? Do you know what it is? What? Oh, there's lots you, of things. You, I think the, the 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 gist of it is that it's better control of the ball. You, yeah. you literally better control, whether it's passing or not fumbling or being hit and holding on or bad weather. It's just you have more surface area, and so you can you can hold on to this thing better. You can imagine, you know, in the limit with really small hands, this would be a real problem. Or with really big hands, it would be. And a real it is advantage. worth noting that college football, where you know Joe Burrow has had many accolades, it does play with a slightly smaller football than the professional. That's is that correct. correct. Yeah. But it's also the case with football that everyone – it's not like there's one place where you can hold this thing. Right, you can or it's not just, like a baseball where yeah. it doesn't matter where you hold it. It's always hold the same diameter. Position. Yeah, you actually literally – and so it's probably the case that guys do hold it in different places mm-hmm. as a function of their hands. So do you th- – but, 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 but I, I, I don't want – I feel like you're in some sense just being clever, and I want to avoid just being clever when there's such a practical – there's such a right, practical I'll implication make, I'll make a statistical argument then, which maybe you'll buy or maybe you won't. So – do we agree for the fact that there aren't a lot of players that have played that have hand size at what Joe Burrow has? That's a fact. That's an empirical fact. There aren't a lot of quarterbacks who have played that have nine-inch hands. Mm-hmm. So that leads to us having larger uncertainty in around the uh, in mm-hmm. the tails, yeah. mm-hmm. and therefore 
most people make decision-making. This is standard utility theory with risk aversion. He's got greater uncertainty, therefore I have to downweight. Yeah, we, That's not saying he's worse. I'm yeah. saying there's greater yeah. uncertainty in but, his performance. But the change in uncertainty is probably quite small. Yeah. And I mean, like we, my uncertainty Maybe. about Joe Burrow... You know, is mostly based. I I think the greater uncertainty about Joe Burrow comes from the fact that all you know this stunning college career had is based on essentially one season, right? Yeah, Twenty three years old. There's plenty of reasons to be uncertain about Joe Burrow's future performance, and I think his hands are the the real reasons kind of swamp out this hand thing. Yeah, I I, I like that argument more. I agree. There's a larger yeah. effect size from just. I put wait of all the sources of uncertainty. Yeah. I don't think his hand size is, is one, one of the, the leading ones. candidates exactly. of uncertainty. Yeah, that's so the, right. The other thing that's going on, I think that we that that we see in other places is that there's such a there's a ready narrative here that's compelling, and yet there's no evidence for it. But there's so much ambiguity; these narratives carry a lot of weight psychologically. So, 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 just, so real quickly, so. that my understanding of the data is that there's no effect. If you run, and I understand there's there's limited data on the tails, but there is data in the tails. He's not the smallest hand that's been measured. There are guys down there, and when you look at the full distribution, I mean, and again, I haven't seen these data firsthand. But but if you did look at the full distribution, and you saw that that effect was flat throughout. And now you're talking about, okay, we're not as well estimated here on the left-hand side. There aren't that big, but it's flat everywhere. And there are some people down here. You're probably not going to jump too far to conclusions that it matters. So I'll, get, I'll give you the argument. You actually, you gave the argument, that I think in my view, Kay, the best statistical argument for why you could make this narrative. We all agree. We don't know where this point is, but there is a left, there is a threshold point at which it would make a difference. We don't know where that is. Yeah. And so that's the narrative and the argument to me. That's is that in the limit. Wait, wait. No, 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 no. That's a mechanistic argument. It's, but no, no. It's also statistical. In other words, there is. it's not a linear function. Yeah. There is an unknown point at which your performance would likely degrade mm-hmm. as a function yeah. of your hand size. Maybe it's at nine inches. Maybe it's at eight and seven eighths. Maybe it's at eight and three yeah. quarters. There is a number for which, therefore... It's easy. I mean, that fact, that's how a lot of times I teach statistics to students. I say, think about the extremes. In the, is there an extreme at which it would make a difference? There absolutely is. Mm-hmm. We have evidence that suggests it's probably not at nine yeah, yeah, inches. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe in the end, the reason I feel so strong about this, I feel like it's a classic case where even if there is something there, there's no evidence there's something there, by the way. You're making a nice argument for some theory. There will be something at some point. We don't know where it is. It's less well understood at that in that tale. I get all that. But whatever slight suggestion there might be, it's 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 so out of proportion with how strong the narrative feels, and therefore mm-hmm. how much weight it it takes in decision making. It's way disproportionate. The, the The compellingness of the narrative is far out of proportion to the actual evidence. Well, it's a little bit similar to the arguments we had about Kyler Murray last year at five ten. Mm-hmm. Um, there was none, right. sh- nobody shorter, and yeah. maybe one at, at that height in the last twenty years ever. in the draft. More, maybe ever. Yeah, I think mm. it's more extreme, and that that's a better. It's that's a, a better really case, extreme. Now you're really beyond the support, and when you're beyond the support, it's like a whole different world. That's right. Now the one thing that's difficult about it is that he brought skills that a 5'10 quarterback would have that a 6'6 wouldn't. And yeah. so there's compensation, which is always makes it really interesting. Yeah. So hand size is highly correlated to height. What makes Burrow interesting is that he's not short. He's a yeah. pretty big guy. He's yeah. nearly 6'4". I list him at 6'4". Nine inches hands is actually really kind of a, a pretty big residual. And so maybe that's the thing that's, that's particularly perplexing. Maybe yeah. the six-feet guys, they had 
disproportionately large hands. But that, that could go the other way, where Absolutely, it's just yeah. it's just a proxy for height. And so, mm-hmm. b- b- if there was an effect, you wouldn't you'd have to separate how much of its That's height right. yeah. versus which is a more sensible relation to passing. All right, fellas, in the last segment, let's roll over to our off season over under. It's Wharton Moneyballs over under. All right, we've just got a list of these things. Eric Bradley, you want to drive here? Well, since we've been talking about, might as well stay with football, since we've been talking about a little bit football, we've been talking about Joe Burrow, so we might as well start with that. So we have a nice over-under here, five and a half wins for the Cincinnati Bengals, who are, in theory, going to take Joe Burrow with the number one pick. So, uh, we'll st- And last year, by the way, they were 2-14. and 14. Mm-hmm. There's a little piece of data there. So, Adi, I'll start with you. Over-under, five and a half wins for the Joe Burrow, nine-inch hands-led Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> oh, God, this is a toughie for me. I'm going to just have to regress to the mean. I don't think you ever predict a team fewer than six games in the NFL. So, over. Well, let me give you the regression. It's like .3 persists of the gap between. Right. So 2 to 8, so .3 is two wins persist. Mm-hmm. So that would be a six. That'd be predicting six, just pure base rate. Yeah. Which is bigger than 5.5. That's right. Good job, Adi. You intuited exactly the right base rate. Wait, so what's the shrink? What's the amount of shrinkage? Persistence is like 0. 0.3. Yeah. And t- towards, towards I see, so 500. Point, this is for our listeners. You would take 0. 0.3 times 2 plus 0. 0.7 times 8, yeah. which is half. So that's going to be six. Or six point, point two. 0.3 of the difference. As, it, as, same. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so oh. I'm going to give you six wins okay. in just a straight base All right, rate. so I'm going to overthink this a bit. I mean, I think Audie's right. I think I probably should just regress to the mean and take the over. I'm going to take the under just because I see Cincinnati. They're going to be playing in a bear of a division next year. Baltimore is amazing. Pittsburgh will be improved. Cleveland will probably be improved. Um, they're going to have a tough time eking out six wings. Strength of schedule <laughs> adjustment. Yeah. Crushing. <laughs> Crushing. I think, that's I, I think I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to take no, the under. I'm, I'm glad I'm going third. I'm going to go yeah. with I'm going to exchange. I like. I loved your comment, Adi. You're uh. right. And then there's this other evidence. And also, first-year quarterbacks don't typically do very well. He may not even play, so he may be talking about Cincinnati under. Like some yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go the under as well. Yeah. Uh, but Adi, started <laughs> so well. Let me out to hang out. No, So maybe one more. We've been on base. Baseball a little bit. So if I took the Yankees, Dodgers, and Astros, which are the three favorites right now for the World Series, um, over under 1.5 World Series appearances. Ooh. Well, appearances or wins? Oh, appearances. 1.5 appearances. Shane, Shane. So Shane, we'll start with you. Well, we have to get the Dodgers in the World Series for that to happen, right? That would be a fact. That's yeah. Right. So I'm going to take the under on that. Yeah. I'm going to take the under on that. So as long as the Dodgers don't make it, you want under on this yeah. thing. Logically worked it through. So I, I think we got to go with that. You want to you want to go to a second question real quickly, Eric? That's more interesting since we're all going to take the under on that. All right. Well, we could take. The, Are we all officially taking the under? I am. So. I'm, yeah, yeah, you have okay, to take the under. How about the one point five uh, wins for the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA Finals? That means they have to make the finals and have mm-hmm. to get, win at least two games if they make the finals. So I'll start you with Cade. Uh, tell me again what it means. The Milwaukee Bucks have to make the finals, and if they make the given they make the finals, they can't lose four zero or four one. They'd have to at least win two games in the finals for you to take the over. Yeah, I'll take the Bucks on this. I think they're the strong, strongest. It's clearly the strongest out of the East class of the East. I'm going to go with it. Yes. Yeah, and I'm going to go with the under on this one. Ooh, Adi. I'm going to go with the over, and my calculation is the line has them at about a two thirds probability of being in, and I think if they're in it, they're going to win two. All right. That's compelling. I'm going to take the over. All right. I'm, I didn't have a reason for it, but I'm glad you guys joined me with reason, so I feel better. 
That has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics live. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. The whole crew was in here from Adi, Eric, Shane. This has been Cade. Thank you to Maddie D for running the show. Dion Simpkins, sorry to deprive you of your bonbons again, making you work on Wednesday mornings. Glad to have you come back and join us next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.